Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn in Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller in South East London. Now, Richard, there's some very interesting news this week. What's your take on it? Well, it's very exciting news, first of all. The West Indies are here. They took off yesterday, they've arrived, they're in quarantine. It means we are getting a three-test series starting on July the 8th. We're actually going to get some cricket, Richard. We are going to get some cricket under rather artificial conditions, sort of biosecure conditions with no spectators, but it's going to be a, a real test series played in two real test match grounds. Joe Root, is he playing or not? I'm a bit confused. He's going to miss one or two tests, they say, because um, his wife is expecting a child. He's going to be with her. And there's uh, some discussion about whether Ben Stokes should replace him as captain. Some people say it's too much of a strain on him. Personally, I would say that after last year, I mean, Ben Stokes could captain the team, make a century or two, take a few wickets, take three or four blinding catches, and then clean the stadium and win the Nobel Physics Prize for his Grand Unified Theory. I think that's completely true. So I think it would be an insult if Ben Stokes weren't to stand in for Joe Root when he's away. But there is one other piece of news, and this is momentous news. And actually, for me, I don't know how I'm going to cope without him. So Jeffrey Boycott is leaving Test Match Special. Well, it is the end of an era, quite literally. With the departure of Henry Blofeld um, a little while earlier, we've lost the two commentators who were the voice of another era of cricket when first class and test cricket was everything that mattered. And um, that's not going to be represented anymore. The BBC is going for commentators and summarisers who can cover all the formats of cricket today. But uh, indeed, the end of an era and very divisive figure boycott, but I'll miss his voice too. I actually think there's something very wonderful about him. I think he was as great a commentator as he was as a test batsman, and that means very great. And what was so splendid about Geoffrey Boycott, for whatever his other weaknesses, he actually cared deeply and knew an enormous amount about the game. And there's a sort of jokiness, a flippancy, a basic, a sort of meaningless drivel factor in quite a lot of the other commentators, I'm afraid. And Geoffrey, he took cricket seriously. It's a bit like Bill Shankly. For him, cricket was more than a matter of life and death. Well, he did. I mean, there's Boycott was a divisive figure. I think somewhere in England, at any moment in the last almost 50 years, there were people arguing about Jeff Boycott, particularly in his native Yorkshire. You know, against him as an analyst, people think he was very ungenerous to other cricketers. He had no empathy with cricketers who weren't at his level of ability, and that covers quite a few. Oh, I think you're being too unfair, actually. I, I, I think he was often highly generous about people who played good innings or bowled well or done a nice piece of fielding. I think he evolved from being a very severe figure to being quite a generous figure towards really? the end. You know, I, I once met him in the TMS box. Really? Um, hmm. And it was quite a curious conversation. When I wrote our book on Pakistan cricket, the history, there was this momentous moment I wanted to find out more about. And that was, there was a meeting between two of the great figures of modern history. That is President Zia, the military dictator of Pakistan, and Jeffrey Boycott in the late 70s on an England tour. They had a half an hour private meeting uh, because the tour was in jeopardy. And I wanted to know 
what happened in this momentous occasion, a bit like Bertrand Russell having an encounter with Einstein. You want to know what was going on. And I wrote a series of emails. I got hold of Boycott's private address and I sent a series of emails, no reply. And then there I was suddenly in the studio being interviewed by Aggers when Boycott walked in. And I thought, this is my chance. I said to him, Jeffrey, what happened when you met Zia? I'm not saying, he said. (laughs) Generous as usual. (laughs) And I said, well, look, hang on, Jeffrey. You're a journalist. You've got to share it with us. I'm not a journalist. I'm Jeffrey Boycott. And he's right, of course. There was a splendour about the man. Well, he had an aura, let's say. um, As I remember on that interview, he corrected you. He said at one point, General Zia gave you an audience and he came in quick as a flash. I gave him an audience. (laughs) I've forgotten that, but it showed he does have a sense of humour, the ability to... He did, he could mock himself, yep. On which note, I think we should bring in, uh, we have a wonderful guest. He's been a hero of mine for more than um, 60, almost 60 years, actually. In the 1960s, he was one of, when when the papers arrived, the newspapers arrived, my parents lived in Germany, and the Airmail Daily Telegraph, that wafer-thin paper, and one of the names I always looked for was PJK Gibbs opening the bats, number one batsman, top of the batting order for Derbyshire. And I'm so happy that Peter Gibbs, as he's now called, is, has come to join us. Peter, welcome. Well, hello, and thank you for inviting me. We've been for and against Geoffrey Boycott, like many in the country, but you actually must have played against him quite a few times. Quite a few times. Well, I'm tempted to play a typically dead bat to that question, really. Right. Um, uh, played against him, obviously, and, and as an opponent, he was obviously a supreme and uh, tremendously talented opening batsman. In fact, he was the patron saint of opening batters. We're supposed to say batters now, aren't we? <laughs> we are indeed. Mm. But he, he was a man. He was a man who who treated cricket as his business, and uh, he applied himself, you know, with ruthlessness, really. I'm not into sort of dressing room tittle tattle, and not not that I know an awful lot. He could be very disengaged from the people he played with, and their response would be, "Well, you know, he's a great player. We need his runs," and they shrug it off. That's Jeffrey. Um, he was never there at the end of the day's play to have a drink, and I know that when he played for England, he never went to the team relaxation room, the team room at the end of a day's play. He would prefer to write up his diary in the hope of a publication in the future. Huh. But uh, he was a man who, who, who was a great example of somebody who kept on learning how to play the game. And uh, as a commentator, well, uh, as far as I was concerned, I, I don't think I ever disagreed with anything he said. And where he was a really good influence uh, in terms of commentating was that he would refuse to dress up a period of play as if we've seen something good, when in actual fact we've been witness to an hour of, of total <laughs> dross. <laughs> and of course that didn't go down well with producers that's very true very important tribute to his honesty and we need more honest commentary like that yes peter your own career in cricket began i think with something of a bang as a teenager you played with three of the greatest cricketers in the world through your league side in um in norton and staffordshire didn't you um, first frank worrell then in turn jim laker and then um gary sopers Yes, it was uh, something of, of a dream for a cricket-obsessed youngster 
Uh, I was thrust initially as a small boy, really. I was playing second 11 cricket for my league club and I'd played well and I'd scored runs. And when we came to what was called Pottery's Fortnight, half the team disappeared and I was selected for a holiday-ravaged first team. One would have expected that uh, the captain might have slipped me down the order, but in actual fact, there it was again, number one, <laughs> with Frank Worrell coming in at number three. Pottery's Fortnight. Tell us about that, Peter. What does that mean? Well, that was when all the potteries and their various kilns and so on, it, it was a, a wholesale close-down of the pottery industry in Stoke-on-Trent. Normally took place the end of June and the first week in July. All right, so everybody had their holiday then. Everybody, all the pottery workers had their had their holiday then perforce. And I got my great chance. Oh. <laughs> Unfortunately, mm. I can't say that I batted with Frank Worrell because obviously, after scoring one, I was on my way back to the hutch. Oh. But um, and and obviously, I, I didn't offer any words of encouragement to Frank as he passed me by. Uh, the following week, more or less, the same thing happened. But anyway, it's a great thing to look back on. I mean, I was a boy in complete awe, completely out of my depth. So in terms of serious appraisal of, of Frank Worrell, uh, you know, I, I was too much of an innocent to really take all that in. But I knew that... Did you, did you realise the greatness of the man, that he was more than, you know, one of the great, finest batsmen of the era, uh, the, the three Ws, Worrell, Weeks and Walcott, but he was a, an international statesman in the making part of the emerging West Indian independence movement and all that because this was about 1960 when you would have played with him yes no I, I, that didn't come into my uh, into my mind at all but I, all that I would say is that he did have a tremendous aura he was probably the first black man that I had met and he just happens to have been one of the greatest That's gracious me yes I Goodness. suppose that the pottery is in the 60s uh, was still still rather a Victorian kind of place, wasn't it? It was still that... Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I don't think it received a great deal of immigration. No, it didn't. I remember Basil D'Oliveira telling me that when he went to Middleton in Lancashire, he, he was pretty well the first coloured person to arrive there. He, he, and treated beautifully, by the way. He was really... He's one of the major things was how, how welcomed he was, as I'm sure that Worrell would have been in the potteries, wouldn't he? Well, uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the Windrush generation had obviously... They had gone into Manchester as a centre. But, of course, and, and obviously the Central Lancashire League all the black professionals, the West Indian professionals that played there. It was very much a community, and Frank had obviously been a leader in that in that community And while he was playing for Radcliffe before he came down to the Potteries and played for Norton. And then, of course, Gary Sobers. After Worrell, you get one of the greatest players of all time uh, yes. playing alongside you. Yes, I was a bit older, obviously, and a little more able to, uh, to take that in. Of course, I, ha I have written about playing with Sobers and the way that most games used to go, uh, which involved him where we won, won the toss. He would bowl the other side out normally and put a, about 125 as a target. And uh, he would immediately come into the dressing room and take his boots off and, and tell the first three of us in the order to get them knocked off. And of course, the, uh, the crowd went mad because there was a crowd, of course, in those, in those days. We had this was professional league cricket we're talking about, yes. isn't it? Yes, and he it was your pro. Yeah. Which year were you playing there? Uh, what would that be? That be would that be sixty four? Sixty four. So you you had emerged as a as a serious. You were a young man. Yeah, by it then, was at my my first 
it might have been my first year at university, perhaps, or perhaps just as I was going up there. Did you ever play against Basil D'Oliveira? He was Middleton and Nelson was in the same Lancashire League, wasn't he? Only only in a benefit match. And of course, the benefit matches were a time when the, the uh, all the overseas professionals got together and had a bit of a jamboree every Sunday in the hope of a, a good payday. I mean, I, I met up with Gary by arrangement in, in London not, not that long ago, really to sort of confirm my memories of that time. Because as we know, memory is a, is a dodgy thing. And um, he, was, uh, it was, he was actually a guest the previous evening to the Lord's Taverners. And they were fast bowlers of fame. And I went through the hotel lobby, very small lobby. And it was a sort of opening batsman's nightmare because I was greeted by these huge, huge fast bowlers that uh, I don't I know. Alan Davidson was amongst them, Jeff Thompson and John Snow, and, um, and Gary. I was hoping to um, try something about Gary, and I wanted to make sure that... And what I was going to say is that I don't want to paint this picture that the professionals, uh, on a Saturday afternoon, this was a tiny stage for, for, for people of prodigious ability. You know, it, it was, in many ways, it was a shame, because we loved it, of course, but for them... They were making the money in the only way they were, that was possible at that time. There was very little in terms of uh, the ability to register for a first-class county and make money on a more regular basis. So they were rather condemned to this Saturday afternoon existence. And uh, it, it wasn't necessarily a happy experience for them as much as it was a thrill for us. So what, what would Sobers be doing for... Exactly, it's a good question, this. I mean, Basil D'Oliveira, I know about him because I've talked to him deeply about it. He would be a printer for the rest of the week. He had a job in the town. What about Gary Sobers? There you are with the greatest cricketer of the age. What does he do from all through the week? Well, as far as I knew, he didn't have a job. I mean, I think that he was paid. It, it obviously was down to the munificence of... Uh, or the benevolence, should I say, of, of a local businessman to foot the bill for the professionals. Uh, and I think he was probably paid enough not to need that sort of job. I, I wasn't aware of it anyway at the time. Was he helpful to you? Did he give you tips and all that sort of thing? It, uh, there you are playing. It's equivalent of a, a very young man playing today with Coley or Ben Stokes. It's, you know, he, he's, he's, he's arguably greater than either of those two, great though they are. So what sort of tips did he give you? Well, it, uh, I mean, Gary, you, when, when you're sort of being coached as a youngster, you're supposed to look around for people who are physically sort of similar to yourself. And, and of course, he was a left-handed player. And I think it was Cardus, wasn't he, who famously said that his style wasn't classical, it was lyrical. It, it wasn't... I think he was probably the person who you could least attempt to copy. As I said, he was a left-hander, I was a right-hander. He was going on six feet, possibly six feet one, I don't know. He was lithe, he was thin, he got fast reflexes, wonderful footwork, tremendous balance. You know, it was hard to say that, uh, you know, you, you've got the chance. I think, I've written, haven't I, the only thing I, I managed to copy was the fact that he turned his shirt collar off. And, <laughs> and I've done that, I did that throughout my career. But that's the only thing. In terms of encouragement, of course, he was encouraging on the basis that he gave you the confidence to say, you know, I trust you to go out and knock these runs off. So you couldn't, you know, you couldn't expect anything better. 
Peter, I read an account that you wrote of Jim Laker's experience at Norton, and the bowler who took 19 Australian wickets in a test match wasn't all that successful there, was he? Well, he was... uh... He was just too subtle a bowler for the uh, for the likes of the people who turned up on a Saturday afternoon, and they could reach the boundary with no great effort. A good blow over cow corner, and uh, you know the, the subtlety went to waste. So he did have trouble. Uh, he'd obviously come from those wonderful open spaces of the oval where he would have been able to trundle without too much problem. But uh, on the smaller grounds, he was uh, he was struggling. I think. Well, I think, um, Peter, that's going to be a, a lot of consolation to, uh, you know, many you know subtle bowlers at our level of cricket, Peter's my levels of cricket, who suffer mercilessly on small grounds. <laughs> what we're saying here, isn't it, that my leg spin would be devastating at the Oval. Aren't yes. You? That's my extension. The reason I get hit for successive sixes in village cricket or is because the grounds aren't big enough and I would probably make it at the top level. Uh, well, it sounds like it, but it, what you could have done with is bowling on the race course at Derby, which obviously was named a race course because it, that's what it was. I mean, vast open space, you could have bowled your legs there. I went to play at, uh, at a place that called its uh, football stadium the baseball ground and its cricket uh, pitch was on the, on the race course. So it was... Um... I didn't know there was a race course. Well, there isn't now a race course at Derby. It's not part of the racing calendar. No, no, no. Fixtures, oh, it, was a, it, it was, must have been a very established race course. It had an enormous sort of race course stand in the last furlong from home. It was one of the one of the oddities of playing at Derby that we changed in the uh, in the jockey's weighing room. We we walked out. We couldn't see the we couldn't see the game from the dressing room. You walked out into the saddling enclosure, sharp left turn past the steward's box and out onto the field. My word! I tell you that. The cricketers who'd have loved it, I mean, Keith Miller, who notoriously was a racing betting man, never not seen at Royal Ascot, for instance, he'd have loved it, as would Lord Ted Dexter. As would Gary Sobers. <laughs> I, I don't think Ted Dexter would have liked it at the time. I remember he, he was uh, allegedly came off the field where he thought he was going to be injured. And he obviously came to check on it on the race card and what was happening uh, somewhere else. But he, he still didn't appear on the ground. And when somebody went looking for him, he was cleaning his car. Anyway, that was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He stood as a Tory MP in 1963, Ted Dexter, didn't he? Stood against Jim Kellen. Yeah. Anyway, he didn't, he didn't enjoy Derby. And a lot of the uh, you know, people like Cowdery didn't enjoy coming to Derby, particularly when there was a, it was a green top and uh, the usual assortment of bowlers were bowling. Peter, apart from Warhol Laker and um, Sobers, you had a, another early encounter with a really great cricketer as minder for Sidney Barnes, didn't you? Yes, I, it was, um, as I said, it, it was delivered to me by um, my captain at Staffordshire, John Eichin, J.T. Eichin, Lancashire in England, and uh, a lovely man, a great uh, encourager of, of youngsters. And uh, we pulled up in the team bus and a guy, a tall chap, dressed in rather funeral gear, got onto the bus, and uh, it was Sidney Barnes, age 91, and I was given the job of sort of shepherding him around during the day's play. It was given to me as the youngest person in the side, and it was... uh, it was a, ta- a taxing experience, which I've written about. <laughs> mm, you did write about it very um, eloquently. It is probably fair to say, but Richard, you 
mastery of detail, which I'm often not, that Sidney Barnes was the greatest bowler of all time. A lot of people say that. He was able to make the ball spin at considerable pace, which nobody's been able to do since, I've in description. He's got a fantastic test and um, first class and indeed, you know, minor county average. A lot of details in your profile of him, Peter, that fascinated me. When he was 80 years old, he bowled a, you know, sort of symbolic opening ball at a match. And he said, I'm not bowling anymore. I'll cause a collapse. <laughs> <laughs> I think, obviously, we're relying upon, you know, other people to tell me what happened. But uh, apparently he was going to bowl this ball to start the match. And it was he refused to bowl with a new ball. He said, give me an old ball, which I think was already to be the case. And he bowled the old, old ball. But he, he did say, well, the new one, I would have cleaned this lot out. You know? <laughs> yes. It reminds me of the famous story of Bradman, who was asked how he would get on against the current English team. And uh, he said, well, I don't know, I think I'd average in my late 50s. And uh, they said, what, you? You had a test batting average of 99. He said, yeah, I know, but I am in my, I am 75 <laughs> now. <Yeah. laughs> One detail I hadn't known until I read your story about him, that um, Sidney Barnes was a, a calligrapher mm-hmm. by profession. Yes. And yes. I think that's very symbolic, you know, a, some, something that demands absolute control with your, with your hands. And he was still... I think a professional calligrapher, well, virtually to his death in the 90s. He was still doing, in his 90s, he was still working. Yes, yes, he was. It was lovely stuff as well. It mm. was lovely stuff. Yeah. Mm. Actually, his autograph was pretty cherished as, as a result. Even more cherished. Didn't he have, you met him, enormous personal dignity and presence, I, I've read. I think in C.L.R. James's account of watching him play in a match once. Well, we've, I mean, we've talked already about Worrell having that sort of presence, and certainly Sidney Barnes did. I mean, he was tall, he was, he was terrifically erect, late, late on in his life. There was no stooping or bending of any sort. He was, uh, so he had, a, he had this, uh, yes, this, this stature and obviously this history of fine bowling. Mm. Peter, I'd just like to now touch on your university career. You were a blue at Oxford for three seasons running. The universities were still supplying a fair crop of first-class players of counties, apart from yourself in that, in that era. But um, Oxford University and Cambridge, and indeed all the universities, are just about to lose their first-class status. I think you must be rather sad about that. What are your thoughts about it? Well, I am, but I mean, that that process started a long time ago, didn't it? I mean, mm. you, when I was playing in the, in the 60s, I mean, we were already living on the, the history of, of Dexters and Cowdery's and MJK Smith's and PBH May's, and, we, and we, we were obviously in their shadows to an extent, but we were also living on their, their abilities. In actual fact, they were all rather older because most of them, I think, had been in the services yes. and, and had arrived at university two or three years later and we were comparatively young. We were just about at a level then that kept clubs, county clubs honest. I mean, one of the things that was said that county clubs would send you know, a second team to players... Very, very wrong. I mean, my first, my f- second game for Oxford, we were playing Yorkshire and they put out their full championship winning mm. side. Mm. And the reason, of course, was, yes, they could get some nice figures, they could get some uh, help, the averages and so on. But primarily, of course, they were paid match money. So if they didn't go, they wouldn't get paid. And, and this, you know, those the different types of payment that existed in those days accounts for some of the the behaviour of players. Mm. 
But actually, I, I looked at your record in my wisdom, and you were beating county sides at that time, even though you're, the teams you played for, the Oxford University team, doesn't have any famous names. Nevertheless, you beat Leicestershire, I can see. I mean, you gave a really tough game to Yorkshire. Um, we, so you weren't... Yeah, a, I remember winning games against Lancashire. Mind you, they had had a lot to drink, so perhaps that might have been an explanation. But no... We, uh, we, we we kept counties honest. That's what I, I, I said. They they had to come and they had to try and they had to you know to to play to the, the best of their ability, which was good. After that, of course, we we got the dreaded Norrington table, which was a oh. was a guide as to which colleges were academically strong or otherwise. And uh, it did really focus the Don's minds in terms of uh, results. So yes, I don't think the reason why. M.C. Cowdery went up to, I think, Brasenose College, Oxford. It wasn't on the grounds of his academic <laughs> achievement. Oh, well, I, well I, I, was, uh, I was one of only two, I think, state school boys in that Oxford side. And, and typically, for, for, for coming from the background that I had, I did have to work in the winter uh, to, to make up for that and, and get a, a decent degree. But others, obviously, were still, were still able to go up there without too much uh, a- academic effort. When um, when I went, I went to Oxford the, the year after you left in 1966, and I would say certainly at my college at Balliol, there was, if anything, a little bit of a prejudice against cricket, and one or two talented cricketers I knew sort of hid their ability a little bit because they were afraid of being sort of stereotyped as kind of dim and reactionary. And I wondered, Peter, did you experience any of that then, or or, no. or even later? No, not particularly. Yes, the, 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 I think there is a division between the hearties and the uh, the academics there. I mean, it, it does it did seem, and it does seem to me still, an amazing thing that I was able to play three seasons of first class cricket. Obviously, not continuous, but it was more or less, I think, continuous for those two two months of uh, of term time. I mean, it was a they were tr- you know tremendously liberal. One morning, I was facing up to an eminent philosopher, Peter Strawson, at nine o'clock. Oh, we're talking. And, yes. and, and, and facing up to Fred Truman at 11.30. <laughs> oh, which, which, was which, was a tougher, which is a tougher philosophical examination. <laughs> <laughs> they were both, both beyond me, really. Um, but anyway, it was a, it was a nice, nice juxtaposition. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, personally, I had to work. One of my my colleagues at Oxford was Richard Gilliatt, of course, who was yes. captain of Hampshire and captain of Hampshire in some pretty pretty good Hampshire sides with Barry Richards and uh, Malcolm Marshall. So mm. he did pretty well. So you know we we had a we had a solid middle order really. Gibbs, Gilliatt, Groves, the three G's to oh. not exactly the three W's, yeah. but yeah. even so. Right. Groves averaged 70 one year, I noticed. I mean, I hadn't heard of him. Tell me what happened to Groves. Why didn't he play test cricket for England? Well, because I think he was South African. <laughs> oh, that's, that's oh. One, one, well, one obstacle in those days. Yeah, oh, yeah in those days. In those days. Uh, it was a fine fielder. He was, he was a tremendous fielder. He used to do exhibition catching at lunchtime out on the parks. Yeah, he was a good, strong player. Peter, I'd like to move on to your, your county career and a lot of details of how people actually played county cricket are fascinating to a lot of cricket lovers today because there are a lot of, you know, it's so very different in many ways. Just looking at the general condition of being a county cricketer, can I ask you first, 
if you can remember what you earned as a um, you know as a derby player. People do ask me how it how it came about. I left Oxford. I was quite keen to see whether I could play county cricket in a, in, a, in a county championship sense. But in, in the, the decision to go to Derbyshire was obviously, in cricket terms, rather a difficult one because it was obviously a place that that nurtured fast bowlers and seam bowlers rather than batsmen. But uh, Rolls Royce offered me the graduate apprenticeship in Derby, so I rather snapped their hand off. It gave me obviously six months working at Rolls Royce and six months playing county cricket, which was which was wonderful. My, my uncle David, um, lovely man, David Oborn, he was personnel manager, one of the personnel managers at Rolls-Royce at that was he? time. Well, you know, I mean, yeah. they were obviously, and it's a difficult thing and a sensitive thing to be talking about at a time when Rolls-Royce is shedding so many people now. Uh, so it's a, it's a grim time in Derby. At the time that we're talking about in the 60s, they were still a very paternalistic organisation and obviously the centre of business life in, the, in Derby. So that's the where I where I came where we came to Derby, and uh, in terms of the money, so in office I got I got some sort of winter salary, obviously, mm. and uh, when I became a cap player with Derbyshire, I remember I think eight hundred and fifty pounds was mm. uh, was the contract sum, and um, Derbyshire were quite a sort of democratic county in that as soon as you became a county player, I think every county every every cap player. Earned the same. Hmm. There was, there was, you know, there were some bonuses. There were win bonuses, of course, but the appearance money didn't didn't apply. Right, that's interesting. The next point that I think people don't realise these days is county cricketers had a big workload, didn't they? Compared to today, a big workload of first-class cricket. I mean, you look at the figures, and you, bowlers, even fast bowlers, might have to bowl a thousand first-class overs a season. It was it was amazing. Two three-day matches a week, and then obviously Sunday league later on. Yep. A lot of people had to get on the field. I, I just said that Derbyshire did not pay match money, but obviously most counties did. And you used to get this fact of fast bowlers. They used to bowl so many overs in a season, but very often they were they were disappearing from the dressing room and strapping themselves up in order to get on the field. Mm. It was quite a rough trade in that sense. We didn't earn much money. In actual fact, people said you know we were hardly professionals, and yet we played in a very professional manner. I mean, I was amazed at how proud people were that they were they were playing cricket, and you were never given anything. You, you know, you may be playing in front of the you know the typical two men and a dog. It would still the skill levels and the concentration required was was tip top. It was an amazing work ethic, and it particularly so one might say. I mean, Derbyshire was not a good, never looked on as an easy wicket, was it? It was famous for its green tops. You have Buxton, which is high up and must have been particularly difficult. And so I look at your record, which you averaged between about 30 and 40 for five years or so. You played first-class cricket. That's quite something, opening the batting for Derbyshire. I can imagine those sort of 11 o'clock starts on a May-June morning. Yeah, well, yes, you didn't often have a, a full English breakfast, put it like that. Uh, as the opening batting but they I don't know why I did like opening the batting and I'm not quite sure why because now in retrospect it seems like a very mad way to earn a living but I I just like that sort of metalsome those first overs where really the bowler was on the same level as you in terms of of his nerves in terms of finding his compass finding a range you know and 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 I, I like that aspect of it but Derbyshire was, there was always some moisture about, and the groundsmen obviously 
produce wickets that suited the home side. You had Alan Ward, didn't you? You had the great, the fastest bowler of that period by far, actually. Faster than Jon Snow, who was probably the only other one. Alan Ward, tearaway. We had plenty of tearaways. I don't think Alan was one of them particularly. He had a very, very elegant approach to the wicket and he was a tremendous, I don't know, six foot three, six foot four and he had a really wonderful natural delivery and he was one of those people who, you know, was so long in the limbs, so so long in the tendons and the muscles, they were bound to go twang in the night uh, after a fair few overs. He was a wonderful and refreshing, it's lovely to have a bowler that the batsman could hold at the opposition's throats you know, and um, and for a very short time he did that, and obviously the word went round the counties that this was a guy who was uh, who was quite something. And then Jim Swanton, picking up on this, took him out to the West Indies for one of those jollies, a, a tour, a tour, yeah. and he came back with a back injury because Ooh. he'd been bowling on hard hard grounds that he wasn't oh, used no. to. And from then on, he was on and off the field, and you know, and it was part of the. You know the the problem with uh, with me continuing cricket really, and the fact that we've started to lose our bowling spearheads. Mm. Uh, you know, we, we certainly weren't cavaliers. We were the we were the roundheads. You can say if we put two hundred runs on the board, we knew we had a, a, an attack that could keep us in the game. Mm. Competitive. You were a you were not a fashionable county, were you? You were you were the under your underdogs. It was sort of, but there was a toughness. You're, 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 you're beginning to explain something of Brian Clough to me. You know that sort of real toughness, that kind of cussedness, and is that fair? Oh yes, is that true? I think that the, the, the year before I left Oxford, I looked in the in the averages, and uh, the two bowlers, Harold Rhodes and Brian Jackson, both got a hundred wickets at barely double figures. They both, I mean, first and second in the first class averages. And the, the, the county ended up sort of um, halfway down the table, ridiculously, because they couldn't put the runs on the board. The wickets were so... And, of course, all of these wickets that I played on were uncovered wickets, which obviously totally, uh, you know, it, 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 it accounts for the whole sort of um, atmosphere and, uh, and, and the way that that game will be played. I remember I met you... Uh... We sat next to each other at a dinner, I think a wisdom dinner at Lord's about 10 years ago. And you'd gone on, gave up the game, what, in your late 20s, 28. early 30s? 28. Um, and you obviously didn't need to. You were a reasonably successful opening batsman for Derbyshire. But wh- why did you leave the game? And then, of course, you evolved this new career as a scriptwriter. Yes, well, we, we'd, we'd had a lovely season, a really successful season in 1970. And all of our bowlers were fit. And the next two years were really grim. The um, Alan Ward was, was injured. Harold Rhodes had left. Uh, and we'd completely lost competitiveness as a team. And it was a miserable sort of experience. And I started to think about doing other things. So I, I left and um, built up a, a sports business, in actual fact. And it, it also gave me the opportunity to uh, pursue some writing which I'd always done, I'd always, at, 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 even at school, my first heroes were Gordon and Simpson, who wrote for Tony Hancock, of oh. course. And, um, and during my university years, I was writing for Smokers, which were, you know, yeah. oh, yes. late-night cabaret in the college. 
the fact that I, I was taking so much time off to play cricket meant that I, I didn't really take as much uh, of an opportunity there to, to, to mix it with the, uh, the cabaret people that were there, Michael Palin being one. He made a most beautiful speech. The best speech at a Wisdom dinner I ever heard was Michael Palin's recollections of playing cricket in, in the back garden when he was seven yeah. or eight years old. It was, yeah. it was glorious. Um, so, we, we, I, and one of the characters, of course, that, that I met up with playing county cricket for Derbyshire was the groundsman, Walter, oh. Walter who became an inspiration and obviously for a film that I, that I wrote. Arthur's um, Hallowed Ground. Mm. Arthur's Hallowed Ground. And he was uh, a wonderful, wonderful man, really. He, he loved the ground, he loved his field, and he hated everybody who came to uh, tear marks in it and, <laughs> and play on it. And he was a wonderful character to, to write and to... Um, I, I mean, he used to come off the field, he used to, uh, we used to bump into him, my opening partner and myself, we used to uh, bump into him as he came off having done the mid, the mid innings titivation of the ground. And he used to, having been on the roller, he used to say, right, lads, he said, uh, dip your bread in the gravy. He said, I've put it to sleep. Huh. <laughs> and which was, our, which was our cue to start ducking and diving, of course. But uh, he, he, would, he would always say that there was nothing wrong with the wicket. Somebody would say, well, it's a bit green. He said, well, grass is green. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so he was, he, was, he was a great character. And uh, there, were, there were characters in the, in the Derbyshire setup that, of course, set me off in terms of, 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 of looking for characters to write about. It's wonderful to have a you know, piece of work about a groundsman uh, who were rather unsung in, in cricket literature. And, but um, the film, was, as you may have seen, was very well-reviewed about film and your screenplay was very well reviewed in the New York Times. Yeah, <laughs> no. Which is a tribute, you know, to a subject which is so, well, so un-American. What, what do you think they were, they were sort of saying, you know, this chap who wears the diamond, I mean, what would they be saying yeah. in, in, in New York? But, of course, David Putnam's name as a producer was obviously the key pointer in that. Anyway, that was a great experience. Very good central actor, Jimmy Jewell, whom I knew as a, I knew as a boy when he was a comedian with Ben Warris. Yes, it he is. Was a, I was at school with his son, and he became a very, very fine character actor uh, yeah. in a sort of second career. You also celebrated umpires in Benefit of the Doubt. Yes. Umpires, had, it seems to me, had a lot more character in your era as a county cricketer and more authority as a county cricketer, didn't they? You always hear of people staying on the right side of the umpire in the 60s and 70s, and it was always a great mistake to get on the wrong side of an umpire. Yes. Well, there were were ex-professionals who were batters and ex-professionals who were bowlers, and you could tell which ones were which in terms of the decisions they sometimes made. And, of course, the great thing about the play that that came out of that was that... um, as long as the television cameras were absent, they, were ha- they had total authority, and they used it. And uh, there, were, there were a number of, of, of umpires. So if, if you, the sweep shot was considered. I mean, in these days, obviously, the ramp shot and the switch hitting and so on. But the, even the sweep in those days was considered, uh, you know, a bit loose. And, um, and if, you, if you played the sweep and you missed, the umpire would give you out, and he would say... Bad shot, bad oh. shot. Mm. Uh, so there was a yes, there was an awful lot of 
fun. There was all, you know, there, there, were, there were characters who you, you knew were living out the last little bits of their, uh, their, their cricketing experience and uh, they were probably eager to get their feet up actually, but uh, there were quite a few nice characters to, to base a play on. And some of them, I've read, actually would help players who were in trouble, weren't they? You know, would give them the benefit of the doubt if they've, um, <laughs> you know, the contract was up for renewal and they needed a few wickets or a few runs. It's possible. Um, it's possible. I wasn't certainly aware that. of that. Oh. I mean, the the, the play that well, I wrote you was, never, was... You obviously never needed any help in no, that way. Oh, come on, come on. <laughs> yeah. um, but I call the play benefit of the doubt, but the origin of that was that you, you give the, the captain the benefit of the doubt whether there is one or not. Mm. And, and that was the rule. And, and the, the play that I wrote was, was sort of based on Bill Alley and, oh. uh, and a young um, mm. uh, Dickie Bird. Oh. Dickie Bird absolutely full of, of, of twitches and nervous ticks. And, of course, Bill Alley coming the, 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 the great old sweat uh, who's going to teach him how to do things. Yeah. Yeah. Peter, you published um, Settling the Score, I think, about um, eight years ago, um, which is a very authentic account of um, county cricket in the mid-60s. Um, reminds me very much of Nathan Lehman's The Test, which we discussed with him, in the sense you've got a thrilling finish and a coming together of on-field and off-field life. There's a lot of, should I say, nocturnal life comes into Settling the Score, and it's... Um, really like to ask you about that. Was that a... Um, <laughs> I, I think well, the Times reviewer talked about lecherous old goats and adultery. Was that really a feature of the, the county scene in the 60s? Well, I, I, I didn't quite see it as that uh, lecherous old goats. Lecherous young goats might, might have been. But obviously right. I think I made the point that a travelling troupe of, of young men and, and putting t- that together with cricket, which had its longers... Mm-hmm. And uh, it's moments of boredom, uh, long stretches of time away from home, long car journeys, and they, they, it did breed a, a, a sense of um, of what exasperation very often, frustration very often, but um, the, the unsavoury aspects of it were were there certainly, um, perhaps overlarded in the in, in the book, but um, yes, it was it was a part of the it was a part of our life then. In a way, you had a. Uh, it seemed in your generation had a bit more freedom in your nightlife, didn't you? You didn't have people hanging around non-stop with mobile phones waiting to photograph you doing anything wrong. And I think you had a slightly different relationship with the press, with the media, than than exists today. And I think you know a certain amount of um, reticence was observed by the media, wasn't it, in yes. in terms of reporting or field behaviour? It was uh, yes, but it was beginning to break down, wasn't it? I mean, uh, you know. I think in the book, for example, there was a certain uh, difference between the local reporter who knew he had to keep on travelling with the team and, and maintaining a good relationship and somebody who uh, you know, was working for one of the nationals who, who didn't have that sort of situation. Well, Peter Gibbs, I, I really loved uh, talking to you. I could go on talking to you forever. Thank you so much um, for coming uh, and joining us today. Thank you for having me. Peter, that goes for me too. I wish we had several more hours to uh, to speak together. Thank you for joining us. Uh, next week, we're going to be joined by Mickey Arthur, now coaching Sri Lanka, who's have got the unique record of having coached four national teams. Look forward to meeting him very, very much. Until then, 
It's um, goodbye from me, Richard Heller. And goodbye from me, Peter Oborn. <laughs>